from a timing perspective, uh, cycles do matter at some point. You do realize things are just badly overpriced. And if you can't find a good deal, cash is better than a bad deal. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, I'm excited to have Mike Zlotnick. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Todd? I am fantastic. And thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. A little bit about uh, Mike. He is the CEO of TF Management Group. And Mike has been a real estate fund manager since 2009. Mike's a retired uh, software exec who began investing in real estate in 2000. And uh, today he manages a variety of funds. He is also known in the circles as Big Mike uh, due to his stature and more importantly, he's known for his personal integrity and his understanding of financial aspects of successful real estate investing. And uh, you also are the author of a book, How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Investment Fund. So with that said, Mike, why don't you give our listeners a bit more about your background and what all that meant, what, what you got going on today? Thanks, Todd. I appreciate uh, you having me on. And uh, yeah, the short version, I'm, the most important thing, I'm a, a husband, father, a great family, live in Brooklyn, New York, uh, married for over 21 years uh, to my lovely wife, four kids and a cat, the fifth child. So you can appreciate that. Yep. Yeah, I, I love real estate. It's my passion. I, I spent a career in uh, software um, and uh, just realized in 2009, I was done with that. It was a great field, but I always loved real estate investing, both passive and active. So my journey started 2009 and we've been evolving ever since. Um, so at this point, um, we uh, run a family of funds, a growth fund called Tempo Growth Fund, uh, Growth and Income Fund, Tempo Opportunity Fund. And we do one-off deals. Um, uh, we have a syndication, uh, almost a thousand doors, multifamily in Indianapolis. We take a substantial position. So from time to time, we'll do one-off deals uh, but our funds are funds of funds, so we need to think about this. So we invest into a lot of deals with uh, sponsors and operators like you, um, basically specialists. So uh, we have broad range of uh, investments, multifamily, uh, self-storage, uh, some industrial uh, distress debt, performing debt, as well as um, latest trend, uh, conversion of hotels to aff uh, affordable multifamily housing. That's been kind of... Mm. COVID created opportunity. That said, just um, operate as a fund manager, enjoy uh, what I do. Uh, we try to pick uh, the best and the brightest sponsors and uh, decide which deals we invest with and uh, we invest in and how much money we invest. That's the exercise. So it's a portfolio building. And I'm a finance guy, mathematician, love anything to do with finance, structuring deals and raising capital, all that stuff. So when you started, you started investing in real estate in 2000. What were you, what were you focused on when you first started? And then why did you switch to the to kind of the model you're in right now? Sure. So I started pretty much only passive, uh, buying apartments and houses in New York city. And you can only buy so much round of cash pretty quick. This stuff doesn't cash flow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of New York city investing and it's been pretty much all appreciation gain. 
you don't get much cash in cash, but um, uh, so I kept doing it uh, passively until I went kind of full-time 2009. That's been the play. Uh, the few years before 2009, before kind of the correction, 2008 and nine, it's gotten harder to find anything useful. Everything was overpriced. So uh, at that point, um, kind of stalled for a few years from, I don't think I picked up anything from 2006 till 2009, and then we started investing again after things sort of corrected. So from a timing perspective, uh, cycles do matter at some point you do realize things are just badly overpriced and if you can't find a good deal cash is better than a bad deal so well that so too expensive and so you weren't finding deals so it didn't make sense i get a lot of people that ask like is it too expensive now you know prices have gone up drastically prices from 2000 you know eight nine ten uh we were paying you know 20, 30, 40,000 a door and those same properties are trading for, you know, 80 to 150 a door. Uh, is it too expensive now? Does it make sense to continue to buy? Yeah, it's a great question and there is no straight answer to this. So you could make the argument that interest rates have been falling over so many years and the falling interest rates essentially compress cap rates. There's a correlation between lower cap rates and low interest rate. Not exactly the uh, direct relationship, but pretty close. So as interest rates have been falling, the cap rates have been um, contracting. The same thing has, has happened with the stock market. They call it PE expansion, price to earning ratio have expanded. So in a lower and lower interest rate environment, the price uh, of the asset uh, relative to its cash flow has been, uh, that ratio has been increasing. So it's all relatively, you know, relatively speaking. So can't go against the Fed. The Fed continues to print a ton of uh, capital and the capital has to go somewhere. And the interest rates are still positive, but they may go negative. So the consequence of this is what is the alternative, right? So if you can't find an alternative and you're sitting on cash at some point, you pick your battles and you put some money to work. So is it too expensive? It depends. Um, I do like substantial value strategies. So if you invest into an asset at a, um, let's just call them a full price, retail price, you're paying full price for the asset today. You're pretty much speculating today on two things. One, that the interest rates are gonna to continue to go lower into negative territory. And there's a good correlation uh, that it may happen. There's a good probability it may happen because US is going kind of the Japan model. And that will uh, effectively lift the value of the asset too inflation uh, in terms of rents, ability to uh, raise rents uh, over time. So if um, the, the rents uh, can, it's basically if the value as strategy can push the rents up, that's your primary mechanism to increase the value. Relying on the interest rates uh, going lower and the cap rate compression is too speculative. So I would say projects with the ability to push the rents and there's pretty good data for a given area as wor is worth looking at. Otherwise, the risk-adjusted returns don't look great to me. The only uh, saving grace would be lower um, interest rates, as I said. So risk-adjusted return is a holy grail of this. And uh, today, it feels like at the current valuations, you have to be extremely careful. So buying retail is hard. Uh, Value-add is the key. The right value-add is even more important. And ability to execute a good strategy is... Um, uh, is critical. So you're buying at the peak of the market and you have to be pretty pretty much aware that if there is a recession and uh, you, you might wind up with the overpriced asset. Yeah. 
Although, although I think there's been a lot of people that are saying you're buying at the peak of the market for about four years now. So we, we don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe we can go, maybe we go higher. Yeah. Hey, you said a couple of key things there that I, that I uh, really have been thinking about a lot lately too, is, uh, you know, one of them being, what do you, what do you put your money? I mean, if you got a lot of cash and it's sitting around, what do you do with it? And the other part of that, that's really important to be thinking of is, inflation. And we've got a lot of money that's been poured into our economy. And if we have a good amount of inflation, then your cash that's sitting around, well, that's drastically losing money and hard assets like real estate and other opportunities um, are probably a better place to be putting your money. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult, but I agree with, you know, what you said with, the, if you can find that value at opportunity where you can create something uh, that's going to be a lot more safe than, especially than sticking your money in, under your pillow. Yeah. So I'll give you some, some feedback with a couple of things you mentioned. So a few, a few ideas. Number one, the asset inflation, the uh, essential real estate and stock market, uh, you do see kind of the escalation of the prices, uh, but the CPI inflation is not there. So at least it's almost uh, difficult for most people to understand. They use one word inflation, mm -hmm. but you have a very weird phenomenon that the uh, CPI inflation is low while the assets are inflating relative to uh, because of the of the Fed policy. Yeah. On the other side, what to do with the money? Um, again, uh, you could keep it cash or you could have sort of, a, uh, again, without advocating the strategy, I'm sure you're well aware but I just got off uh, another call with a good friend of mine who does infinite banking. And essentially it's yeah. a whole life policy. So you could park your cash through a whole life, get some rate of return and get access to cash. It's just one of the techniques folks can use. Again, I'm, I don't, I mean, you know, I use the policy from time to time and, and know many people who do it. Uh, it, it. You can't overdo it. Let me put it this way. You could do a little bit, but yeah. you still have to diversify. It should not become a massive part of your portfolio but it can do something with cash. The, the other place you could put cash in some uh, short-term you know, loans, some, depending on what you can invest in. If you have opportunities to park the cash somewhere with decent yield uh, at a reasonable degree of safety, maybe better than writing you know, an aggressive check into a deal that you can regret. Yeah, I agree. Hey, real quick, I just want to let you know about the multifamily challenge that we got going on. It's a five-day multifamily challenge on how to get an offering uh, quickly, right? So we're going to teach you in five days, five one-hour sessions. We're going to go through the steps and the process to get there. So go to mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com. You can sign up. It's free if you want the VIP. There's a bunch of things that we'll give away too. You, gotta, you, gotta, you do have to pay for that, but hey, it's going to be well worth it. Again, you can get in for free. We're going to teach you how to get that offer across the table, get the LOI in, uh, all the steps. So Ellis Hammond and I, Ellis was episode 316. Check, check out his episode. And we're going to be doing this next week. So sign up now at mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com, and get in there. We're, uh, we're doing it next week, and it's going to be awesome. So hope to see you there. You mentioned... These hotel to multifamily conversions. Ex explain, you know, where 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 are you seeing those, or how, how do those opportunities? How's that working? Pretty basic stuff. Pandemic hotels uh, have been hurt, and probably one of the most hurt sectors. Um, depending on the type of a hotel, 
it, it can be acquired at a well below the reconstruction cost. Mm. So ideal targets for the strategy are kind of extended stay hotels, residence inns, like they look like small um, yeah. apartments. And you have to pick it in the right area. Ideally, you, you want it to, to be in the interstitial neighborhood so it fits in. The conversion almost naturally blends the, the conversion into a multifamily housing. Mm-hmm. Affordable housing is a big trend. Um, the, the high-end housing is oversupplied in many markets while the affordable is in high demand. So that's something to, uh, to pay attention to. Uh, you could convert any hotel to multifamily, right? If it's in the right location, you could do luxury. I mean, we, we just did a deal uh, in Ogden, Utah, converted a kind of boutique, really high-end hotel to multifamily, and it flew off the shelf way ahead of the pro forma. It's a possibility it can happen, uh, but it is an aggressive play today. The more conservative play is to pick up some of these extended stays. Uh, where do you get them? That's, that's a holy grail question. You need relationships. So I can tell you that a few deals we're investing in uh, this relationship with the uh, with basically foreclosing bank. So these hotels have gone through foreclosure, and upon foreclosure, the bank wants the monkey off their back. So if you have banking relationships and they are foreclosing, um, and you can complete the foreclosure, you could buy it off their hands, up, you know, immediately after that. Uh, distressed debt. So from what I uh, what I hear from some folks, they're looking to buy this distressed hotels paper and then complete the foreclosure that's a way to get ahead of uh, ahead of the curve so uh, other than that i can tell you that um uh you could look with the precision essentially uh if you have a given area zip codes and drive around the city look for the hotels that look like they are semi-empty the right size i don't know 80 90 100 doors nothing too big nothing too small uh maybe more Uh, but you, you could get to the manager to the owner have a conversation, figure out if they're open to the idea. If they are suffering as a hotel, maybe you could either partner with them or acquire it from them uh, to convert. So, are, and are these um, are these uh, operators doing low income housing tax credits on them? Yeah, it's a great question. If you can, that would be great. Uh, in general, you have to, you know, it's a it's a political question with the city, right? Yeah. If, if the economics work without tax credits, you can. Uh, move forward with it. If you can get tax credits as a benefit, great. I've looked at a number of conversion projects. They don't make any sense without tax credits. Then the answer is obvious. You, 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 I, I mean, literally I have a project I'm working on right now. And um, uh, the primary sponsor is working with the city, with the politicians to get the, the grants, the credits, the state, the federal, uh, the city, anything that he, because, because the project without that support doesn't make enough sense. With that support, it makes great sense because it's, it's a big difference if you can get substantial credits. So you, you got to kind of look through the um, uh, that, what you can get realistically and what is speculative. If you can get enough, again, you can have tax abatements, you can have tax credits, you can have city development grants, you can get redevelopment grants. There's all kinds of programs. And if you're well connected and you can get support from the town or a city, you could make the project uh, kind of a public-private partnership where you can still make good return to you and your investors and at the same time help the city execute the strategy like right. rejuvenation of a downtown. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Um, what What are some... So you're, you know, you got a fund of funds. Basically, you're, you're raising money and you're taking 
those dollars and put it into operators that you know, like, and trust? What are the things that you're looking for in those operators, in those deals that, you know, you want to just make sure checking them, checking the boxes? Yeah, it's another great question. So we've been doing most of it in relationship. So we, we start with operators that we already know. I mean, that yeah. ecosystem is pretty strong. Um, can't take all business at all. Like if somebody were to reach out and I have no idea who they are, first question, who referred you? If you can't communicate that, uh, mm. it's just not going to waste time. But if somehow folks come on a strong referral from a well-known party, at that point, we'd like to uh, know them. We should always start with the, with the person. Uh, integrity, background check. Uh, one of the things we, we've been doing recently, just running some background checks, making sure there's no funny business at all. But if all that passes, you can demonstrate um, uh, integrity, obviously high competence in whatever your strategy. And then uh, also we look at uh, operators who want to raise small institutional and professional uh, money with institutional and professional waterfalls, not interested in folks that raise capital with mom and pop waterfalls. I mean this with all due respect. So the product, whatever offer, whatever the deal, it has to have the, um, what I call them, uh, kind of the right risk adjusted return. So the balance between what the uh, sponsor uh, gets and what the manager gets, the economics have to be right. There has to be substantial alignment of interest. What I don't like to see is when the people charge a ton of acquisition fees and other fees and then the investors uh, take you know, all the risk. So as long as uh, you can demonstrate that you are a sponsor uh, looking for, uh, I call them small institutional capital and you're open to give the right terms, we, we, we can look at, uh, at working. Then strategy, right? Uh, what, what is your strategy? Uh, why do you believe it's the right strategy? Uh, do you have capability to execute? And if we pass through all these hurdles that you are the right sponsor, no like and trust gets there. At that point, we, we start chatting about what projects you got coming up and then what capital we can, we can write and what are the terms. Uh, we're not opposed to doing side letter and investing in a deal or a code GP or LP with the side letter terms. You can raise your capital from uh, other folks and they call them mom and pop with all due respect. It's just non uh, small institutional players. And it makes sense. We were open to do anything that makes good sense. In some cases, we've done some, instead of just going into common equity, we've done some preferred equity. In some cases, we've done bridge, just to see how people operate. Uh, also, ideally, we'd like to uh, see an operator with third-party administration. Uh, we use Verivest, and we like when people are on that platform. If you use another third-party administrator, uh, it's an important piece. Um, and people ask, why? Why can't I do the books in-house? Well, the Bernie Madoff, well, a lot of people... <laughs> Are spooked by the uh, nothing wrong with in-house uh, accounting and, and bookkeeping, but some people do that. But it, it feels better when there's a third-party administrator. So it's kind of something that I like to see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It it, it just you, you, when you have third-party districts, you know that can that can actually relieve a lot of stress. Um, we have we do that with our with some of our contractor relationships with some of our management relationships, just uh, completely disinterested parties that are looking over some of the operations. Um, explain the mom and pop versus the institutional. So our listeners can understand what you're talking about. Like when you talk about the, you know, the fees and the splits, what are some of the things that you see on the, the quote unquote mom and pops versus the institutionals? 
And you, you mentioned the waterfalls specifically. Sure. So, um, institutional. So, I'll give you an example. T typical institutional uh, spread, uh, kind of high quality uh, fund would have eight pref. Depends on the strategy, right? The strategy matters. Yeah. But let's yeah. use an example: eight pref and an eighty twenty over eight. Eighty to investors, twenty percent to the uh, managers of performance fees. Light on the acquisition fees, you know, one two percent. Light on annual management fees, typically, you know, one one and a half, maybe two in some extreme cases. And then um, uh, alignment of fees again, no, no crazy uh, development fees. Uh, Got to look at the mix of fees, disposition fees. If you start seeing a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the lightweight sponsor, light asset acquisition fee. So give you an example of a Tampa Growth Fund waterfall. So you could actually see we have eight pref, then 80 20 over eight uh, on a class A units and 70 30 on a class B units. And then we charge only 1% asset acquisition fee, no other fees at all, no capital raising fee, no development fee, zero other fees, and then 2% annual uh, fund management fee. So it, it is sort of a light. It's not, you know, zero, but it is something that we are very motivated. We have performance fees and 2% uh, keeps the lights on. Now, uh, and then the 1% asset acquisition fee helps us underwrite the deals and, and, and just cover that overhead. That's it. The rest is backhanded. We got to have the stuff perform to return a performance fee because it's eight pref cumulative until uh, all pref right. is paid return of capital. And then uh, now let me show you kind of some, some of the bad stuff. I'll look at deals that have very substantial upfront fees. Uh, asset acquisition fees could be ranging anywhere from two to 6%. On top of that, I've seen deals that have broker dealer fees capital raising fees, uh, they add up 10, 12%, ton of, ton of fees. Wow. Then they have exit fees. And on top of that, you'll see a waterfall like an eight pref and then 50, 50 over eight, right? And somehow they get the IRR to the high teens. I don't understand how possible that even possible, but- um, Not in today's market. Yeah, and it, it often gets even worse. They pay eight pref, even though they, assets don't generate the income it is crazy it's like a ponzi scheme so uh i wonder when they're going to collapse yeah. yeah right so that that's an example of extreme uh, and there, there's stuff in between you basically i want to see alignment and the sponsor has enough kind of uh meat on the bone to eat at the yeah. same time they're not getting fat uh while at your risk you know expense yeah no that makes sense um do you, do you like waterfalls? You hit a certain threshold. The uh, GP now starts, you know, getting more. I think you're referring to the IRR hurdle. Yeah, IRR hurdles. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind. I actually number yeah. of deals we have. Give you example some of the hotel conversions we have. We are an LP, so we have off the top of my head. Uh, we have one deal that has nine pref, 75, 25 until 18, and then 65, 35. So I don't yeah. mind if you get investors to a high target like 18, can they shift down? Yeah, absolutely. It's not not a crazy uh, requirement, you know, not a crazy request by the sponsor. Let's talk about, so we talked about, you know, working with GPs. Let's talk about working with the LPs. Um, when, in creating those relationships, you know, what are, what are some of the things, obviously you've built a fund, Built a couple funds, uh, several funds. That's that's what you're doing. You're you're raising a lot of capital. 
what what are some strategies that somebody kind of newer coming into this that that wants to start raising capital? Let's say they have all the knowledge already and, and they're ready to to start putting their knowledge to work. Maybe they've already invested in many assets themselves with their own money, but they want to now bring on limited partners. How do you find that money? Where do you go? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a long discussion of many strategies, right? Uh, but I, I will start this. So if you're going to capital raising, you always start with your uh, sphere of influence. Always go to your friends and family. So before you go um, crazy trying to raise capital from people who don't know you, start with people who you know you. So ask them the question, go to your list and say, if I were to have this indication, if I were to have this fund, would you invest with me? And, and, and just give them some framework of what you think the returns could look like. Hmm. So you go to your ecosystem and then you ask for uh, their soft commitment. Two, who, do, who else do you know? Who do you know that I should know? Right? You ask for referrals as much as you can. The best strategy is always a viable strategy. When we go back now and think, can we go back to our current investors again and again and ask for referrals? This is something smartly, right? Asking for referrals is not the technique, but one technique, hey, if you have a book, send three copies, let them pass two to friends. Hmm. So give them something of value. Yeah, give them some of the value and then let them let them share with people who might benefit from the same uh, value so once you go past your uh friends and family and, and and referrals uh you need to establish kind of relationship with influencers right to, to whatever ability you can uh is there somebody you can partner with who is has got a pretty substantial tribe if you can join a tribe where there is uh capital already you're now accelerating your own um capital raising by the degree of the tribe, you will ha obviously have to share, you have to pay something or you have to give some equity. But if you can partner with the tribe leaders who have an audience, that, that might help. Uh, continuous education, I mean, there's an expression, he or she who educates dominates. So if you have a good strategy, um, write a book, I mean, build authority. Uh, Dan Kennedy is a brilliant, you know, uh, marketer, as you know, who is Dan Kennedy, he talks about ACE, authority, credibility, and then E can be exclusivity or experience, right? So if you have to build at least authority, credibility, and let's just say experience, people can actually uh, understand and appreciate um, you. Uh, and then uh, whichever way you, you feel education is right. So webinars work. I, I like on-demand webinars. Um, you obviously got to get to the crowd, right? So how do you get to the to leads? Uh, the key is be build your follow-up system. It's one of the things that we've we've done is we've built you know, infusion solve-based follow-up system. Uh, the capital raising, wide majority of it is in the follow-up. Probably you know you can raise ninety-five percent is in five percent in the first touch. Not even that, probably less. Ninety-five percent in the follow-up. So yeah, you gotta just keep following up relentlessly. Stay stay engaged, and that helps uh, when you have a deal and you have a fund. Uh, but you can't put a fund ahead of the uh, ahead of that sort of ecosystem. You're better going to influencers and working with them rather than just trying to put together a fund. What do you do for follow up? Is it is it? You know, maybe you have that first phone call. Do you have a? Is it continuous phone calls? Is it emails? What what is your follow up? So this is work in progress, continuous evolution. Um, uh, 
emails, but you don't want to spam, right? Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, what, what we are doing today, and we're trying to be careful, we're trying to be um, uh, flexible and adjusting. We're doing sort of a weekly email, soft, nothing crazy. Uh, and then I have a podcast coming out every week. So we just let them know, here's a new podcast. And then um, some other update, if there's a newsletter out or something else. Uh, obviously, we're moving into the uh, couple of other ideas with these deal room uh, kind of updates, like what's the latest deal, uh, something that came back, something where we're funding, uh, give investors a little bit of that. Yep. So e email is one technique. I mean, we're discussing potentially uh, initiating texting, which is intrusive. And it's soft test texting. It works if it gets aggressive, it gets really annoying. So that is, is important. Um, scheduling follow-up calls with investors is another idea if you have an ecosystem, if you got investors, uh, kind of checking in with them, uh, how yep. things are going. And uh, we have a cross product to fund. So we, if somebody's Tempo opportunity, they may want to consider Tempo growth. So that discussion can help you cross sell if you have more than one product. If you have only one product, you know, ask, ask for how, what, what I can do for you and maybe they can do something for you, introduce to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great advice. Yeah. I think the follow-up's really important. Um, I'm trying, we're, we're trying a lot better to make sure we're following up with a, you know, with that first initial phone call. Um, obviously, you know, with your friends, family, your closer connections, follow-ups probably not as important because you're likely talking to them a little bit more anyway. They already know you really well, but especially somebody who's just reached out for the first time um, or even came as a referral that follow-up is so important. If you don't follow up with them, especially somebody that's completely cold, uh, you maybe had that first conversation. If you're not following up, they're not going to invest with you. They're just, they're just not. Yeah. The propensity to um, invest again, depending who you're raising capital with, but back to Dan Kennedy. I love his book called no BS marketing to the affluent. Hmm. He, he says that the propensity to convert for um, affluent investors increases with every follow-up point. So you, on the first follow-up, on the first contact, you, you might have conversion rate half a percent. On the next one, maybe three quarters of a percent. And as you continue following up, uh, that continues to increase. And, and that's, that's the key. And yeah, pushing, basically not pushing, but elevating people from a cold lead to a warm lead takes, could be 10 follow-up, 10, 10 touch points. It's just a process. It's a hard process. To build no like and trust with a cold lead can can be years. And what's really interesting is this observation. We have investors who already know us. We already have no like and trust. But they are just slow to make a decision. It's just the one observation I made. Uh, I've talked with a number of investors, and it is continuous touch points. And sometimes it takes a year to get that friendly investor to write the check. But you got to be in front of their face. You got to keep uh, kind of chatting with them. And uh, I mean, it, it is a game of uh, persistency and follow up. There's no no better way to put it. It's funny that you say that because I've had some people that you know you have that there maybe a connection or even a close connection. You have a, a one or two good conversations with them. You think they're for sure going to invest, right? In your next deal, you stay in communication with them. They get your email newsletters, whatever else. 
they see that first deal and they don't invest. And then the second deal and they don't invest. And all of a sudden, a year, two years, uh, it's been even at times like two years or so. And all of a sudden they just invest out of the blue. You, don't, you didn't expect them anymore to invest. And they just all of a sudden invest. Like you said, they're just like slow to make decisions. And they're kind of watching from the outside too. I think a lot of times you just kind of want to watch, make sure things are going good. All right, I'm ready. Yeah, it's one is mental readiness, two, uh, it's personality. Yep. And really, uh, I've had people who are saying, I'm filling out subscription paperwork. Like literally, I'm doing it. And then week after week and months after month passes, and they're still doing it. <laughs> okay, and a year later, we, we, I was able to get some conversion, but it's just continuous soft pushes. You, you got to give them space. The other thing that happens is uh, events. So life events, something happens, yeah, they sell something. Uh, and then when it happens, they're ready to make the move. And then, you know, if you're not in front of them at that time and they're, they're thinking they got some, some money to, in, to invest uh, and another message shows up, I mean, that, that's the point about persistency. You, you got to be in front of their face um, as long as they, they keep you on the list. The other thing that I like to do is to add some, some humor, um, kind of not to pollute them with too much information. I see too many newsletters and we do once a month, but it's hard, there's massive information overload. So if you yeah. give them a short email with a couple of, you know, uh, news and, and some, some humor, it feels like it's better than, um, you know, a white paper with uh, with 10 pages of great content. They just don't have a freaking time to uh, to read that stuff. Yeah, they, they look at it and they just, they're overwhelmed. So they don't even look into it any farther. They just, it goes, it may, maybe even goes into their, you know, future reads, but they never end up getting to it. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, it, it, it's called shelfware. All these great, <laughs> all these great, uh, when it was in the software, we call the shelfware. Yeah. You a bunch of software packages and they're all great and all the things, but you never wind up doing anything with them. Right. Right. What's uh you know, what's a mistake that you've made uh, along the way here and how have you learned from it? How can you, you know, bring some value to our listeners with that? Uh, let me think about it for a second. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, originally I'm from Russia with love. Originally I grew up in the former Soviet Union. I, I can't, mm -hmm. you know, there's a Russian old saying, measure seven times, cut once. So when you're making uh, a multi-year investment decision, uh, you got to really do your due diligence. Sometimes you'll, um, you make a decision and you invest into something and you're really uh, stuck. So I would say, uh, the, you know, one of the mistakes, you know, we, we do that, we deal with it every day. We've made some investments that look great at the beginning and then, um, uh, you know, they don't pan out. But I, I could tell you the one thing I've learned from, um, uh, from underwriting and, and investing and doing this again and again and again. There's a one holy grail that you just can't violate, and that's called diversification, because you never know what's going to be great and what's going to collapse. And it, it, we've done well, well because we've diversified well. Uh, I've had I have deals that three, four years down the road, they are great deals. Or they look phenomenal originally. They had pro forma IRR in the 30s, and it's a self storage ground up, and boom, it happens to be Houston, and the Houston market got saturated. So you're three, four years down the road, you'll lick, you'll lick with your wounds and you exit with slight positive return, but it looked great in the beginning. Mm. Uh, so 
we've had deals when I never thought there'd be a home runs and they're home runs. Yeah. So the only way this can work is to build a good portfolio strategy and diversify. Yeah. So of all lessons, you, you can't be perfect underwriting each deal. I mean, this is why I go back and I say, well, could I have done better job underwriting the deal? And the answer is yes, I could have done a better job hindsight, right? We shouldn't have invested in the deal four years down the road, you're getting 2% return per year, right? It's terrible, but it could be worse. Could You could lose all your money. The deal could go completely sideways. But the only way you could save uh, your face is if you diversify and you spread the risk and you wind up uh, with a bad deal, but you have enough good deals to cover. Yeah, I mean, and there's, look, there's one thing about being smart about underwriting that's definitely critical and key, but we are also future telling, right? And you can't tell the exact future. You can't, you can't exactly tell that we're going to have overbuilding in Houston to what extent we don't know exactly. And so there's, there's certain things that you can do. And there's other things that you, we can't predict what's coming exactly coming five years from now. We don't know what political forces are. We don't know if there's a war, we don't know, you know, what exactly is going on if interest rates go to 10%. We, we just, we don't know that and we can't underwrite the future. So yeah, you got to be smart about it, but you have to understand there's still limitations to it. Yeah, great point. I love, you know, if, you get, if you're going to ask me what's going to happen, I have this joke and exactly along the same lines that you're telling me, uh, uh, I don't know the future. I used to have a crystal ball. It was great, but it broke and I can't find another one for sale. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you can't predict the future, just prepare for various uh, versions of the future yeah. and diversify among many dimensions, regions, sponsors, debt, equity, as much as you can. You may have a favorite sponsor. People might love Todd, right? And they can do a lot of stuff with Todd. And there's nothing wrong with it. But make sure you don't put everything with Todd. I mean, I mean this with yeah. all due respect, because no, you I never know. Todd might not feel well, you know, God forbid something happens or Todd decides, you know, he's got a, he now wants to be a professional baseball player. I don't know. Oh, some change. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's happening though, but you're, you're right. And I tell, I tell investors, you know, I all every once in a while get an investor too, that they, they've got a really sizable chunk of money and they want to put it into one deal of mine. And Oftentimes I'll say, well, look, let's maybe let's spread that into two or three deals. And I oftentimes will give referrals to other sponsors that I really trust. And I feel like would be great connections for these investors, especially the ones that have a substantial amount of wealth to diversify into. Cause I agree. I mean, you, you want to diversify. I'm not going to go play baseball, but at the same time, maybe my strategy one of my properties, you know, whatever, if you put it all into one property and that property is like the Houston deal. Well, now you're sitting here and going, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. So. Yeah. Um, and then just a quick, a quick yeah. thought on this. And um, the one thing I, I've kind of learned from, you know, successes and, and, and failures, and sometimes we have a home run and sometimes we have, you know, a, a tough deal yeah. is that you got to build a portfolio theory. I mean, as, as, as sophisticated as it sounds, it's not, right? Think about this. If you take your invested capital and you divide by 20 to 30 assets and you you can diversify. Can you diversify with five and 10? You can, but you're better off with uh, uh, some kind of a uh, spread. And uh, 
avoid shiny objects. So operate with a plan. Start with the blueprints. Start with a plan and where you're going. What are you trying to do? If you have that, with your average investment size, uh, you will have a pretty decent framework what deals to invest in and what checks to write. Because people are sitting on $2 million in cash and they don't know how do I invest it? Well, how do you invest it? If you want 10 deals and you have 200,000 a deal. Yep. And if, as long as these deals are sufficiently diversified, you may be good. Or you write um, maybe a few bigger checks into diversified vehicles and smaller checks yep. into focus vehicles. So all yep. it is, it's not rocket science, just common sense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, all right, so we're going to wrap up here. I got a couple last questions and uh, and then we'll wrap. So what, what's a, you already mentioned one book, No BS Marketing for the Affluence. What's a favorite book, either real estate, business book that you can recommend? And of course, not your own. We'll get yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's as crazy as it sounds, but everybody knows this book and it's, it's basic. Even my kids asking for it. And I go back, and I really like um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's as simple as that. It's, it's got four quadrants. I actually developed my own four quadrants thinking about uh, the kind of uh, Robert Kiyosaki's four quadrants. My quadrants are different. It's, it's an investment grade, speculative growth and income basic stuff. But I like that book. It's as simple as it gets. Um, uh, there's a number of um, uh, corporate books. And uh, uh, I got a kind of, think about it, but back to the, again, Dan Kennedy's um, No BS Marketing to the Affluent. That's sort of uh, the book that I'm uh, enjoying. Uh, the One Thing is a good book. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's uh, um, David Phelps. I mean, I'm involved with Freedom Founders. He's got a book, What's Your Next? Uh, so it's a kind of, it is designed for sort of dentists looking for their next thing, mm -hmm. but it's an interesting uh, perspective. You know, what's your next? What are you going to do? What are you is there, if you made enough money, are you going to retire or are you going to do something else? So Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so last question, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? So I think I mentioned one already, diversification, right? That's the, the basic um, uh, concept and, and it doesn't get any, uh, it, I would call it primary risk mitigation strategy. Uh, so uh, obviously um, network, mm, yeah. right? The, who are your top five or your top 10, who, who people you know, the, the, the stronger your connections, the, the better it is, right? Yep. And then continuous learning. We're not perfect. We, we're learning every day. Uh, the most thing you can, the best thing you can do is learn from your every experience. People generally learn more from their mistakes than from their successes. So every day, just try to think, um, what are you doing? What systems and processes you're following and how to improve them? Don't, don't, don't get stale. I want to go back to network because I think uh, what you got there, uh, you've said fairly quickly, but you said your top five, your top 10, and make sure you know the, you're making good connections. A lot of people, when they think about networking, they think about casting a super wide net, getting everybody and having, you know, a lot of people don't make very deep connections. It sounds like you're talking about making actual real connections. Yeah, absolutely. You you, you don't want to have uh, too many friends. I mean, you got no friends then, really. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 you want to have relationships with people who um, 
they're, they're providing positive impact on you and you're providing positive impact on them mm-hmm. and you're going deeper. So for sure, they have to be great relationships, not broad range. The broad network, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just you, you got really no, 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 no real friends because there's yeah. too many of them. Yeah, yeah, good, couldn't agree more. Um, all right, so a lot, ton, look, Mike, tons of great information. Uh, thanks for taking us through, you know, what your experience is and, and um, you know, talking about obviously the power of diversification, the, the authority, the credibility, all, all that kind of stuff, really good uh, information. How can our listeners get in touch with you? You got a book, why don't you mention that uh, book and then how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, the book is available on Amazon, how to choose a smart real estate investment fund. It's basically top 10 questions to ask before investing in a fund or syndication. Um, You could pick it up on Amazon. I have versions of it on our website. The easiest way to uh, remember bigmikefund.com, just like it sounds, bigmikefund.com. And if you misspell it and you type bigmikefund.com, I promise it's not a kinky site. (laughs) <laughs> that's good that's good um, yeah that's that's the easiest way um you can schedule time on zoom again uh you, you literally you go from bigmikefund.com there's a button to click or you go bigmikecall.com it schedules the time it's a calendar link all right uh, so how tall are you bike i gotta ask that i'm six four six four all right um and you have a podcast too what's the podcast Big Mike Fund podcast. You can get to the same place Perfect. by going bigmikefund.com, click podcast. It's a it's a personal brand and it kind of goes back to the Collective Genius Mastermind. I'm sure you've heard of the Collective Genius. Yeah. You probably know Corey Boatwright. Yep. Yeah, my good friend Corey. So years ago I was thinking um, how to get a podcast going and you know, could, could be something fancy like creating wealth show, real estate investing show, something like that. He says, no, you're known as a big Mike and you're a fund manager. So call it Big Mike Fund. So it's kind of CG guys gave me feedback and again, I give Corey a lot of credit. The book was, book was written with, with help of Corey. It's kind of um, recorded the book through an interview and then got transcribed. Oh, uh, cool. So bigmikefund.com is where you, you find everything. Awesome. Well, Mike, I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us again. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a rating and review. just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, And also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. 
that. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.